Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Doomer Optimism. My name is Trace Crow, and I'll be your host today. Actually, Trace, Trace, uh, that's not what's going to happen today. Um, my name is Dave, and uh, I'm actually going to be the host. Trace is somebody that's going to be very familiar to anybody that listens to Doomer Optimism podcast. Uh, really, really wonderful guy who's doing a lot of really interesting things that he doesn't talk about a lot because he's always the guy doing the, the background work. And so today is a day to learn a little bit more about Trace because I think there's some really, really great things that Trace has got going on in his life that's slightly different than the vast majority of Doomer Optimism podcast guests. And, and I think it's really, really important to underline some of these things because there are, you know, the vast majority of people that come on this podcast are like, go buy 20 acres and, you know, graze some sheep and plant an orchard. Well, Trace has got a very different approach to how he's handling what you know we all kind of feel and see is coming up in the future. Uh, and I want to dig into that. But before before we get there, Trace, I want you to tell us about uh, you had a really formative train ride when you were 12 from Michigan to Colorado. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Wow. That, wow. <laughs> I feel like I'm being interviewed by Oprah. This is a deep cut. Um, yeah. So when I was 12, my parents decided they saved up and we were going on this really cool uh, Colorado ski trip. Um, but instead of driving or flying, they decided to take an Amtrak. And, uh, and you know, this would have been 91, 92. Um, you know, an Amtrak ride, like it's taking you through generally like either nowhere or um, kind of the seedier, like less in invested in parts of towns. Going over country. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful cross section of our country um, that you don't use. I mean, they call it flyover country for a reason, right? You don't get to see it from an airplane. Uh, and now with the highway system, you don't even get to see it from a highway. Like you, you really only get to see it by train or by bike, you know, or by intentional drive, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I ha it happened to coincide with me like getting super interested in Simon and Garfunkel, which is like a, a moody, <laughs> okay. introverted teenager. Like that's not the, or maybe that's the perfect music other than the cure, maybe. Um, so I, uh, I sat on this train for almost two days, maybe 36 hours. It was, it was a sleeper car. And um, listened to Simon and Garfunkel, especially like America, right? Literally taking a bus across the country. Um, and seeing like this part of the country I'd never really seen before, it, you know, it kind of like hidden out of view. I mean, you're 12, you don't travel that much. Um, it made me realize how beautiful this country is and how much there is to it, right? And that there's all these little niches and that it's all romantic and it's all interesting if you just, um, you know, get down on the, you know, the 10 foot level at the, the human level, right? Um, and I, you know, at that very early age, I already was finding a lot of beauty in like the, uh, the ruins of the 20th century. Um, you know, certainly in growing up in the Rust Belt, like the ruins were and had already started right by, by the nineties in Michigan, you know, all the industrial stock was falling apart. Everyone was out of jobs. It was a very like kind of bleak time period to grow up in and place to grow up in. Um, but I already saw the beauty in all of it. I saw the opportunity, right? Because when when the rules, when you go to a, get to a certain point, the rules get suspended, which means when the rules are suspended, that means really good ideas, really emergent ideas, that's when they can come out, right? Uh, I think we're actually seeing it with Detroit and many of these Rust Belt cities is that they're actually, they got so low that they're able to actually like be more flexible and do more interesting things from a diverser, uh, more, more diverser, more diverse uh, viewpoints than places that are booming, like in Atlanta, where I live now, it's booming. And so the, the feeling is to tighten, right? And be like, oh, we want to hold on to what we have. We want to keep growing and growing and growing. And when growth is like not even, if, if that's your pipe dream, right? Then you have this opportunity to like really rewrite the rules. And um, I, I, I won't say I glimpsed all that at 12, but the kernel of it was, you know, the seed was planted. It was there. Yeah. Um, it really didn't take expression until I took um, in college. I took uh, the history of suburbia. It was like one semester when I was 19. And it was like based, based on Kunstler book. 
basically yeah you know yeah. and also like the late 90s early 2000s was like a renaissance of like black comedy around you know american uh american beauty right like, there's all these like really deep critiques of suburban america um yeah, yeah. you know which really was the fallout of like grunge movement and like this whole like you know the the reagan era sheen that got over everything and that was even made worse by clinton um was all just that it was just a veneer on something very very rotten um and suburbia was kind of starting to be identified with that you know and i knew in college i knew a lot of kids from suburbia i happened to grow up in a in a functioning small town in the rust belt which is like it was a unicorn i didn't realize it at the time but it was a unicorn um i could ride my bike from one end to the other like literally when i was 11 i'd ride my bike with my friends it was like stranger things it literally was like freaking stranger things We'd ride our bikes across town and we'd go to the drugstore and get candy and we'd get mag Just mad magazines and we like an unheard of amount of agency for an 11 year old. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and it's cause it just cars hadn't taken over. It was just not a very car centric place, which again, for Michigan is a very strange place to have grown up. <laughs> yeah, no um, kidding. But I met all, you know, all my friends were from suburbia from car centric, you know, 60s suburbia and, um, they hated it. Like they, they did not have a sense of, of place, like still mm -hmm. to this day, Grand Haven, it's in my heart, it's home. It's what I think of as home. And they were all like, no, nah, I got to get the hell out of here as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's because the places are very unlovable. Like they're built for machines, not for people. Um, and uh, the history of suburbia class, like was what helped me I, articulate that. So one problem of being, about being outdoors, can you hear the plane? Okay, it's yeah. it's not it's not too bad. Um, yeah, and and it articulated the the problem for me, like you know, and it, yes, during that class, they they um, uh, made me read Geography of Nowhere by James Howard Kunstler, and it was like, it just cracked my head open. I was like, this oh, yeah. this is putting a name to everything I I in, intuit right. Um, and from that moment, I would I was a new urbanist, like or a very, or more more to the point, a walkable urbanist. It was like we have got to get rid of the cars. We have got to focus on the human scale. Um, we are ruining our psychology. Like we're we're literally ripping the fabric of our society apart by forcing people to live in pods. It's funny that we talk about the pod people now, but suburb suburbia is just pods. These are these little like residential separated pods, separated pods. by separated by roadways that yes. you can only traverse. In a car. Exactly. exactly. A pod separated by tubes that only pods can go in. Yes. Yes. It's deeply dysfunctional. And when someone finally kind of like pointed out, like most people's lived experience is they like sit in front of the television, then they go in their garage, they get in their car, they drive to a place by themselves, then they sit in a cubicle and then they get back in that car and then drive back. And it, almost at no point did they talk to another human being, right? And mm. and if they did, it was mediated through capitalism, through through their jobs, right? Through this kind of this already this false sense of, uh, you know, or this sense of precarity, right? About your your social scenario, and um, I think like seeing that so viscerally in Southeast Michigan, uh, on the heels of what is almost like Mayberry, where I grew up, it just like was like, you know, this like immediate jarring thing for me, and it just completely changed the trajectory of my life. I saw something. You know, I like to say it was it's like those old 3D uh, pictures, right? Where like once you see the 3D image, it's very hard to unsee it. Oh, yeah, I just sure. couldn't, I, it, it it screwed me up. I've never I, you know, that was 20 over 20 years ago. And I've never I been able to think this. Yeah, you've been, you've been ruined ever since. Yes, exactly. Which is which which I, I can imagine has a lot to do with uh, what you're doing for a living now. Um, there's there's this this thing that I always strive for to increase in my life this like alignment where you have dreams and values and the thing you spend all day doing drives towards both those dreams and is com in complete alignment with those values and like I really really admire people who can do that on all fronts and, and it really seems like you've been doing that can you tell us a, about what you're doing and why it's you know why you think it's important and how it relates to you know your path there. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of following the the line, right? You know, Kunstler yeah. really changed the way I couldn't see uh, urban design another way. I, I I saw I saw how dysfunctional it was, and um, and I also got in a car accident right around the same time. It, I totaled the car, but I was actually like I was fine, right? And and no one was injured, but my car was totaled. And then that last bit of like boyish sense of like immortality was just stripped away and now it's like oh my gosh i'm in a four thousand pound piece of metal going 75 miles an hour next to other four thousand pound pieces of metal like that sense of invincibility in a car has left and it's never come back so i have this like very just bad relationship with cars i hate cars and um and so that was really like the lightning rod for me right like it was like kunstler told me why i should hate cars i already hated them and so that became like my rallying cry right was just like get rid of cars i'm just get rid of the cars go back to walking everywhere um i'll deal with the horse shit that's fine we can have horse shit in our streets as long as we know these freaking cars killing everybody um but around 2012 2010 2011 before that but i was starting to the, occupy wall street is really what again kind of cracked the veneer for me I was working in banking. I was working for a major international bank in the retail side. And I would spend all day defending as an assistant manager, like defending the bullshit rules of this multinational corporation. And then I would spend all night on Twitter watching the Occupy Wall Street movement get their heads beat in by the cops. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm I'm, like, I'm completely unaligned. I'm 100% yeah, exactly. unaligned. Exactly. And I said, I have to change this. I have to change it. And the change for me was that I, I said, well, I have to learn the rules of the game. And that's, I've, I've been like, oh, well, I'll be an outsider. You know, I wanted to play music and be an artist and stuff. And that's a beautiful thing to do, but it wasn't a direct action enough for me. I, I thought, well, I have to, I have to learn the rules. So I went and got my MBA. Um, and almost immediately out, out after that, I quit banking, got my MBA, and then almost immediately started working in like the startup space you know which mm -hmm. immediately appealed to me uh because it was it's just like it's the wild west it's like you the difference between a fraud and a success in the startup world is literally like how much money you make like whether you're actually a success and in many cases look at uber right like what is the line like what is the real difference between uber and theranos right there's very little daylight between these two companies and one is fraud and the other is you know oh you made a bad investment guys sorry you didn't see through the transparently bullshit uh veneer they put out there right um but i love that 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 precarity that like wild west nature of it like just really appealed to me and i've been working in startups ever since so mostly on like you know kind of my sweet spot is taking like an early stage startup that has clearly a good founder product market fit a little bit of money um not much and now we're ready to like professionalize like we want a professional brand we want a unified narrative we want to know how to tell the story maybe they need some light sales help that kind of stuff right and i've done it repeatedly i started my own company it actually ultimately failed but i i like to say it was my um uh my real mba that's where you're i learned about your tra training ground yeah yeah um, I learned so much um, from it. And uh, and then I just started helping other brands kind of get started. Um, and then it, like COVID, everyone, I'm virtually everyone we talked to, COVID was a transformative experience. Um, I, uh, I, I literally like one night, like heard like the, the mental noise that was always going on just sort of cleared. And it was like, make food. I just heard this very clearly. It just, I didn't hear it. It was in, it was in were my you like, were you like really hungry? <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't, it was kind of late at night and I was just kind of tired and uh, it was very, it was, it was, it's, it was not as, uh, it wasn't like the angels came on high and, you know, came from on high and sang to me. It was, it was my voice. It was the normal like voice in my head, but like, it just was eerily clear, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Make food. And I'm just sort of like, you know, sitting there being like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Like, how am I going to make food? I don't know what I'm doing at all. I've tried to grow peppers five years in a row and haven't gotten a single pepper. Like, what am I going to do? But the next day I started like emailing like uh, kind of food related nonprofits, just seeing if any of them needed a volunteer and none responded except for Jamie at Roots Down. And he wrote me back and was like, 
basically like, I don't, I don't need a volunteer, but I could really use a marketing guy right now. Um, and so we kind of struck up this deal that I would help with some branding and web, web work. And like, I mean, it was like, how long ago was this? Uh, this is October, 2020. Okay. And it was, it was like, um, you know, like the business equivalent of love at first sight. Like we knew immediately that there was something between the two of us and that we could help each other make something cool. And, um, and so I started with Roots Down full time by like January, February of, of uh, 2021, like within a what couple is, of months. What, what is Roots Down? Yeah. So we are, um, we're an educational platform. So we're helping transform the landscaping industry. Uh, right now, it's like one of the most dangerous, most ecologically destructive industries in the country. Um, but it is a $130 billion industry every year. So there's lots and lots of resources um, available in this industry. And it's doing about as badly as it could ecologically. So it's like even a little <laughs> bit of change would be a huge change, right? Um, and so we're... Wait, you know, before, can you... Can you, can you um... Give us a, a couple of a couple of bullet points under how bad how badly normal uh, normal landscaping is doing. Yeah, I mean it's um, well, it, it's a major driver of particulates in the air, right? So it's causing asthma, it's causing hearing loss, um, it, and these are just the people who 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 work for landscaping, yeah. companies, right? So we're um, talking about we're talking about like leaf blowers, leaf lawn blowers, mowers, yeah, the, yeah. the noise and the dust that gets kicked up by all of this largely unnecessary make work. Yeah, in order and, to and, like and exert a certain and, amount of control. Yeah, exactly. And they're using two-stroke engines, which are the most like dirty engines you can really use, because it's not just shooting off like the CO two, which we're all familiar with. It's also got a bunch of carbon monoxide, which is way worse than CO two, and it's throwing off like particulates right like the fine matter that like essentially is would poison the food if you're trying to grow food you'd have to really wash it off because it's kind of poisoning the ground it's kind of poisoning everything around us so we lived in a uh when we lived in the bay area we lived in the bay area for close to two years and when we lived there we lived in this on this cul-de-sac it looked like a quiet little cul-de-sac you know walking distance to the school kind of the best case scenario for a suburb we had a little spot for our garden that we started. We walked our kids to school and back. And we didn't have to drive much at all. But I was absolutely not prepared for the Saturday and Sunday morning marathon of <laughs> leaf blowers, lawnmowers, and weed whackers. Mm -hmm. it, it would start at 7, and we couldn't. it would be the most beautiful day outside. And we couldn't keep our windows open or our doors open. Mm -hmm. because it was so incredibly loud for hours straight because they would just go from one house to another and then there'd be another crew that came in and it, it absolutely blew my mind that this was like normal in suburbia because i grew up in a suburb also that wasn't like this this has become extremely normal especially in uh you know more affluent suburbs uh, where just it's just just constant noise on the weekends it's absolutely insane and i never really thought about the particulates except that it smelled bad too. So yeah. I guess I did. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a very real thing. Yeah. And yeah. And, and beyond that, like the way they're maintaining it, right. The over pruning, you know, I mean, we don't think of, you know, we think that a bush is supposed to be around nice, beautiful shape, geometric or shape or, or shape like a box so yeah. that it doesn't impinge yeah. on a sidewalk and it looks like you have absolute control. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But what we're cutting the tree right now, now losing branches and and pr self pruning and stuff like that are something that trees and shrubs bushes do naturally right but the level the like the just the intensity of it is diseasing them it you know lowers their lifetime by by years right so you end up essentially the way we're maintaining if we really want to boil it down it's enormously costly from an ecological standpoint soil runoff um, you know, herbicide and pesticides getting in the water, yeah. right? All that kind of stuff. But it's also just costly. It, it We've it convinced ourselves that it's the most e cost efficient way to do it, except for we have to turn over the landscapes every five to six years because we're beating them to death. Or what mo usually happens, especially with public landscapes, right, is they never replace them or they replace it 15 years later. And by the time they replace it, we have like these little stubby sticks, right? Um mm -hmm. There's actually a really drastic uh, example at one of the libraries that we've worked at in DeKalb County here in Georgia, where 
they had a really beautiful plan, like just six years ago. And you kind of see pictures. It's like the worst kind of before and after, right? It's like, this oh, is what no. it looked like when they put it in. This is what it looks like after six years of mow and blow, right? And maybe it would be forgiven if it actually wasn't expensive. But like you, you look at it and say, okay, well, the county spent probably tens of thousands of dollars destroying the landscape they spent tens of thousands of dollars installing, right? Um, and so if you just kind of take the whole package, it's it's really astounding that the landscaping industry has gotten away with it for this long, that it's been this destructive and this costly. Um, I mean, it's virtually unchanged since the 50s. You know, all, oh, yeah. all that's happened is there's just more of it and it's more destructive and more brute force, right? Um, and so, you know, our whole our whole vision is that you can not spend more, right? Not do more, just do different. So what if landscapers were growers, right? What if they were there to help grow spaces and they had some basic horticultural knowledge? You suddenly now have a semi-professional career that someone can do that is not giving them asthma. It's not, you know, occasionally chopping someone's toe off. It's not, um, you know... Uh, ruining their hearing and poisoning rivers. And it's like, they're there to steward the land in, in, in what we call productive urban spaces, productive urban landscapes. Um, and so that's the vision, right? That's the vision is we want to take that 130 billion we're spending, which by the way, everyone says we have no money for climate change, right? Or climate mitigation. Yet we've spent a trillion dollars in the last 10 years, making climate change worse, actively making it worse. So what if we just take that budget right? And slowly shift it. Let's start with wildflowers. Let's start with some fruit trees. Let's start with some basic stuff. Let's start turning our our leaf blowers off when we're not but, using them. But you know? Trace, I, I heard that urban fruit trees just drop fruit and it attracts flies and then becomes a nuisance. Yeah. That... yeah. And, and that is not untrue, right? But the thing is, is that many of our urban spaces, what's so fascinating about them is that when you plant the right species of, of fruit trees, um, and fruit bearing shrubs and plants, what you get is the right kind of insects and birds who then, even if humans don't eat it, the birds eat it, right? And the, and the insects eat it. And, um, but that's also our, our vision for this is kind of twofold. One is that here in Georgia, we already have an amazing organization called Concrete Jungle, which has mapped out all the public fruit trees. And then they send their volunteers being like, oh, this is fig season, go check this batch of fig trees out and That's then they cool. give all that food to uh, they disperse it to food kitchens and, and food pantries and things um so that model right just have volunteers but our our vision is let's we're already paying millions of dollars in many cases for landscaping crews to maintain these spaces let's just have them do it differently for the same cost now we're not using gasoline you know, we're not using pesticides and herbicides in the same volume. So now we can invest in people, right? So the cost doesn't go up. It's just differently uh, differently um, apportioned. But the and magic that, there is like you're investing in people instead of shit that you have to buy from, you know, whatever industrial company. So not only are you spending the same amount of money, but you're actually providing more employment, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. And more money then stays in the community. You're saving yeah. a ton of money. While the lands, we rarely, we will not say this is going to save you money on landscaping, right? In some respects, it may even cost you a little bit more. But the value add to the community, you now have um, food insecurities reduced, climate change, it's a climate change mitigation strategy, you're keeping soil in place, so your sewer systems last longer, you're employing people. You know, the, the kind of hidden secret about the landscaping industry is that like, a lot of people working in that industry are uh, undocumented immigrants in this country, and they're not paid a living wage. So we're we're saying this is so cost efficient, and it's because we're not paying people what they need to live, right? It's because because it's always the hidden externalities. Oh, this is cheap means oh we're hiding we're hiding where we're cutting the corners, so you can't see it. Yes, yeah, and this this model of uh, the productive urban landscape way of doing things allows you to, I, I would we argue that it allows you to do the most good for the least uh, extra expense, right? Like if you were to external or internalize all those externalities, I mean, it would probably double, triple the price of landscaping, right? And we're yeah. not, we're not, what we're saying is no, we're not going to internalize those externalities. We're going to let go of those externalities by doing this slightly differently. So you can spend that same budget, but now you're 
you're reducing budget in all these other buckets or better yet those you know all the extra savings in the sewer system how about you go put that towards updating your sewer system which all these communities need to do right oh, yeah. um and so our ultimate like argument is really financial it's really a fiscal argument is that that oddly enough the least efficient way to grow landscapes is the most cost effective it, you know, and that's i think that's and kind of get back to doomer optimism i think that's some of what's going on in the doomer optimist crowd is that we're realizing that some some of these old ways of doing things um are only inefficient because we assume human labor is inefficiency like that's the assumption but human labor oh, yeah. Uh, in a Taylorist sense of like, I'm going to clock you and make sure you're optimizing a sledgehammer usage, right? No, that's that's horrible. That's making a person a machine. But agriculture, growing things, doing things as a community is not necessarily work, right? That is, it is, it is, it is a way of spending your days in which people's lives can be in alignment. You know, there's a lot of people that would gladly work as a grower. Right. And, and then you could have old people working as growers. You could have young people working as growers. It's now a safe career. So you can have 15 year olds doing it instead of working at McDonald's. Right. It, it, this is a whole way of being that is in line with capitalism. Right. It's in line with capitalism. We're not saying people shouldn't be paid for their work. We're not saying you shouldn't make a profit. We're saying let's just start doing it slightly differently. Um it's for for us, you know, once in our roots down circle, it's become a very almost like. I don't know. Um, it's so obvious that it's become a truth to us, right, that, that this is like, you know, we can start small. Let's just start to shift some landscapers over to, you know, closer to the fence. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to go full on food forestry and every public right of way, you know, but we also like should not ever be planting grass again. Like it's almost no more cost to replace when you dig up to 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 do the things that cities and counties are always doing. You dig up the dirt, replace it with a wildflower meadow like it's the same cost. Wildflower seeds are not expensive, you know, and they're easier to maintain. You now only have to mow a couple times a year instead of mowing every two weeks. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's it's a no brainer in that front. And I think in some in some contexts, grass is wonderful. Like, you don't want to run around in a wild. You don't want to play soccer in a wildflower field, right? So, yeah. like, you still you still for public spaces, you're still going to want some grassed areas, but not every area. Like right now, it's like, oh, there's a three foot gap in this median. Let's put turf there. Mm -hmm. And, and well, you're, let's just put cement there. Oh yeah, that too. Either either one. Neither one of those is a really great option, right? Yeah. Um, so that's that's great. Can you tell? Like, I know you guys have a like a a really great example project in the, in uh, in a library in Tacob, right? You have a Tacob library that's uh, that's like a good a good test bed. Yeah, yeah. So we were we were very fortunate. Um, Jamie uh, Jamie Rosenthal is the founder of Roots Down and my business partner. Um, he um, established a good relationship with then mayor of Clarkston, Georgia, um, Ted Terry, um, and they helped catalyze some good projects in Clarkston. And then when excuse me, uh, when Ted became Commissioner Ted Terry of the county, this was one of the main initiatives he wanted to bring, is, is how can we start a, adjusting the way that we do public landscaping to save money uh, and make lives better? Um, and so we started work with his, his office as well as uh, Commissioner Marita Davis Johnson's office. So we kind of did two offices at the same time, and we, then we just focused on the libraries. So we did six libraries in DeKalb County out of the 23, um, and we put uh, test beds, essentially, around these gazebos at the libraries to kind of turn them into like an outdoor pavilion where people could sit, get out of the sun, and then also enjoy nature. Um, and we planted some edible, or well, it's about 50-50 edible um, elements. Um, I like to say everything in it is edible to something. Uh, but there you go. Percent is edible to people. Um, and the reaction has just been I mean, just through the roof. Like we have, we have people. It's like once they know, like once people know about it, they this go is an option. Saturday. The yeah. world can yeah. the world can be like this. It's not yeah. just grass and grass and like calorie pears. Like yeah. this is a real thing. Yep. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's people that go, go back regularly and we'll get, you know, some cherry tomatoes, you know, it, it's somewhat self-regulating. Um, you know, obviously these are small spaces. Like these are not at certainly at the scale they're at, these are not food insecurity solutions. It's not a solution by itself. It needs to be paired with other things and it needs to be done at scale. Um, you know, as you know, like one little thousand foot square foot bed isn't going to, you know, feed 20 families, you know? Yeah, but but it can show people like this is not only possible, but this is actually even more feasible. Yeah. And you can you can transform the rest. The rest of your neighborhood can be like this as well. Mm -hmm. And this is where I mean, this is the success we've had. And we're really very proud of it because, you know, that first push, right, um, with some consulting um, helping kind of like not sell the idea, but like explain the idea, right? To internal people like facilities management, which is the department who maintains the properties at the libraries, um, other commissioners, uh, city officials, just kind of explaining what the heck we're doing here, right? Uh, and then we built the gardens for as test beds to show to show it. It's a lot easier to sell a dream when you can show the dream than to to just be talking about something in the future. Yeah. Look, it's um, been done and it doesn't suck. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, and we also did a lot of community engagement. Um, really, kind of meeting with the community, hearing what they wanted to, making taking making some missteps. You know, learning how to engage with community better. Um, Clarkson is an amazing test area for us because. Um, down here, they call it the, one of the most di diverse square miles in the country, right? I think there's over 80 nationalities are represented in this very small town. Um, and we have, we cat we've catalyzed, I think, six different projects in Clarkston now. And, um, and so we're very proud of the community engagement work that we've done there. And we have a lot, a long, a lot, lo a lot of long ways to go, right? Um, but the Clarkston library is the kind of really become the centerpiece, right? We converted um 30,000 square feet around the library we now have um using uh, ARPA funds uh the rescue app so 30,000 30, square feet so we're talking we're talking two-thirds of an acre yeah pretty darn close yeah, yeah yeah and um and what's been so amazing is that we uh have gotten an additional commitment from the county they've set aside $250,000 of rescue plan funds um to go to extending that uh, through facilities management to the Clarkston Community Center. So now it's going to be a whole campus that's of of two different types of uh, government entities or or semi-government entities working together to kind of create a, a unified campus, unified by the landscape, right? Which is going to be a totally new way of doing it. Um, but beyond that, they have um, they passed the fruitful libraries resolution uh, that the board of commissioners did here. So they are committing to a quarter of a million dollars to do a transition plan to transition all 23 libraries in their system to this, this framework. Um, it's just been astounding the level of response we've gotten. I mean, we started this work, um, you know, it was a year ago in March, right? And we started this work and it's been all, I mean, just been a tidal wave of interest. In so, you, so you've made, you guys have made all of that progress with government agencies mm -hmm. inside a year. A little over a year. A little over a year, so about uh, sixteen months. Yeah. Okay, so a year and a half. You've done all that inside a year and a half. Yeah, I, sta I started with the company. I, I started with the company in earnest in uh, January, February of 2021. By April, we'd broken ground on the first projects, um, and you know, I mean, I like to say from Earth Day to Earth Day, like this is what we're <laughs> um, with government. Yeah, and and this is this is this one of the central kind of i don't know lessons we've learned and, and it's oh, funny yeah. that so many of the kind of big what what uh so many in the doomer optimist circle call the bug people you know the the, the yeah. liberals who believe in um bugs and pods top down top down solutions right we have yeah. to make everyone do this right um and policy is important don't get me wrong policy is very important but we have believed since the very beginning that the actual scale at which these things should be deployed is at the city and county level. It's the optimal. Yes. You have real budgets that you can do things with, but you and those people, real and those people, and those people live there. The people yeah. making those choices are going to live there. That's like a exactly. huge, huge, huge thing. I exactly. Think. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, I gave up. You know, I don't know. Really, around um, when when we nominated Hillary, 
uh, and the whole Trump uh, years, I really lost faith that the federal government was ever going to get their shit together in any kind of capacity that that would be valuable. Now, I, I uh, the Reduction Act is cool and all, but it's really too little too late. You know, we needed bold, decisive action and we needed it during Obama's presidency, really. Um, and so I've been kind of that was very hope hopeless for me for a while. But this oh, yeah. awareness that there is still enormous political will, enormous political power and actual financial resources at the city and count level, county level is really like, oh, this is the way it's it's a lot. It's a fragmented. It's much more regional. But you can get a lot done at the city and county level of government. See, that's that's magic. What I do know is that if you live in a place and you you see it every day and your neighbors are there that that the the entire dynamic of government changes mm -hmm. um and so like this is this is an absolutely like a this is, i think this is really threading the needle really well between um giving up on government and and then saying that you know the supreme court needs the mandate that every library has pear trees or or yeah. you know so, something along those lines but um the one of the biggest things that i notice about certain groups in startup world tech world etc is that they constantly look at all of the problems in front of us as engineering problems mm -hmm. and i noticed that you never really talked about it being an engineering problem like we have you have the solutions that that, that are going to like make a huge difference in your community and that the a lot of the work is being done with community engagement and whatnot it's a sociological problem it's an anthropological problem it's uh, it's, it's a cultural problem not a an engineering problem um community engagement is really 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 difficult and you said you had a couple of stumbling points can you share some of the lessons because i think i think people are going to listen to this and be like wait a second they did that they, they did that in atlanta i want to do it i want to do it here how do i how do i start and uh you know how do i avoid the big the big puddles that you guys stepped in on the way yeah. I, you know, the the first thing I would say that that was really like eye opening for us is we really started. Well, this is more of a startup issue is like you kind of you really re you really do have to know what your product is. You have to know why you're doing something. Um, and. Um, and and then listen to the customers. Right. I mean, I, you know, I know that the lean startup methodology has been a little bit kind of debunked or or now it's a little bit passe. But, um, you know, the, the audience is the one who's going to buy the product. So there is that if you can have if you can get into that kind of dance early on where you're like you, you try something and then they're like, nah, that's not it. You know, and then you try something else and you kind of figure it out. You know, for us, it's it's been very easy because in that respect, because the 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 why has always been the same. The landscaping industry is a destructive force in this planet with huge budgets. We need to change that right now. How we've gone about it, we started very much as uh, government consulting, right? And so our community engagement piece was more about educating the public about what the government was doing, right? Um, and that's a big that's a big job. Um, it's also one that, you know, in, in urban environments, especially you cannot ignore groups of people. Like that's one of the things that make, um, uh, you know, um, make government hard, especially at the city and county level in urban areas, specifically, especially large metropolitan areas, is you have a lot of diverse voices and you really can't afford to piss any of them off. Because in a vote that's decided by 40 votes, right, that could be the 40, um, you know, when you didn't show up to the, you know, the, uh, you know, Jamaican American Association dinner, you pissed off it. 40 votes, right? That was that was who you pissed off. And so there's a level of accountability at the local level that is really daunting, right? It's It's a very scary thing because it's one thing to, you know, tweet an opinion or... Um, or have your press agent talk about your opinion. It's quite another to have your neighbors coming to you a meeting where, that you're leading and telling you you're an asshole. And you and for maybe vaguely personal reasons or people saying like, your idea is stupid and here is why, right? And you have only a couple options at that point. You either, you know, learn to be flexible and talk and, and listen, truly listen to other people, not just defend yourself with words. Um, and uh, and acknowledge that everyone everyone's voice is valid, 
Um, and it only becomes less valid if they're squashing other people's voices, you know? Um, that's when it's sort of like, okay, your time, sit down. We need to hear from other people, right? Um, and so I guess the, the long story short, like the first one is that diversity matters. Diversity of opinions matter. You have to meet people where they're at, which is hard. Like it, it's easier to pretend that's not real when you're trying to operate a large national or global scaled operation, right? You know, when you're yeah. Facebook, you're not a lot less concerned about making individual pockets happy. You're worried about the aggregate happiness, right? Right. Uh, or aggregate performance. Um, working at the local level requires you to take everyone's viewpoint into consideration. Um, and so it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot of hand to hand. I like to say it's hand to hand combat, right? Like you really have to like meet people where they're at, you know, what were the, what were the, uh, you know, what were the objections that you were hearing? What were people's concerns? Because I hear this and other than the joke I made about the fruit falling and attracting flies, yeah. um, it's, I mean, it's, it sounds wonderful, but then again, you know, I'm the, I'm the choir. So preach, right? Yeah. Um, well, no, the food thing comes up all the time, Right. Um, which we have to, you know, kind of point out that like, we're not planting fruit trees, we're planting an ecosystem and ecosystems necessarily even themselves out after, after a while, right? They sort themselves out and it may take a few seasons to attract the right birds, but eventually you will. And that overage won't be so obvious. Um, also in urban areas, specifically to that question in urban areas, like, I mean, there, there's such a monoculture that when you produce an oasis, it's like the cardinals all tell the other cardinals or something. And then you end up with like an overabundance of what you, you brought. And, you know, and then that brings a predator, right? Who now is like, oh, great, the cardinal buffet, you know? And but it takes a couple of seasons for that predator to figure it out, doesn't it? It does. it does. It does. And that's why the concrete jungle model is so important for sort of saying as we scale or as we replicate this in other cities, we will either be working with whoever is the local concrete jungle, or we'll be working with concrete jungle to help them scale too, or we'll be simply seeding the organization we need in order to help us achieve the other end of that. Um, but the other obvious question we get all the time is who's going to maintain this, right? Yeah. Um, and you might be surprised given our solutions, right? But that actually tripped us up a lot in the early days is we is and the answer is obvious like i you know now the answer is well who's maintaining it now right like we just you know, change what they do and yeah, make it exactly. less less make it less shitty to do yeah exactly so you know that was really in fact that question and the number of times we stumbled on it was a central kind of like defining point when we realized when we figured out the answer to that question we also mm -hmm. figured out one of the core uh tenets of our solution which is training and recertification or retraining and certification for landscapers. So the mow and blow landscapers can start to access this enormous emerging market that right now is left. I mean, here's some of the statistics on this, like less than 3% of landscapers are ecological landscapers, right? So the reverse of that, 97% of the market are mow and blow landscapers. That's what they do, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet, close to something like 30 to 40% of American like landowners are open to some form of ecological landscaping. So what that means is there's just this enormous friction because there's more supply than there is demand. And the pro the biggest problem with this supply demand issue, which again, this is kind of an engineering problem. Like when you look at it that way, what mm -hmm. we pointed out is that the actual problem is that both buckets are too ideological. This is a political issue. People think of it as a political issue instead of the right thing to do or a better way of doing business. So what we're our goal is to get, you know, kind of bridge that gap, get the three percent of ecological landscapers to be a little less ideological and um, and pedantic about it. Right. Uh, to sort of kind of democratize what has been kind of a, you know, permaculture it, uh, is a little bit of a. A fiefdom right like or or you know like a, a, a an esoteric class of of knowledge that only the true believers understand and we're sort of democratizing that a little bit at the same time we're telling all these mow and blow landscapers who are like we have this troll who con continues to heckle us on twitter who's always like you know i mean he almost literally said 
Um, you know, you're going to pry, there'll always be lawns. You're going to have to pry my gas leaf blower out of my cold, dead hands, you know? And we're just like, cool, dude, you know, cool, bro. Like, well, you know, 40, 50% of your guys on your side of the fence are eco-curious, you know, like they're kind of like, I'm open to it if someone would make it easy for me. And what they need is education. They need access to the market. And so that's really where we've decided that's where we realize that's what the market needs. It needs someone to start to lessen that friction and start to let supply meet and demand meet in the marketplace. Um, and that alone will, I mean, can you think if we manage to like eliminate 30% of the 50 million acres of lawn and replace it with wildflower meadows or fruit trees? Um, I mean, another kind of statistic, uh, I think America grows something like uh orchards on like 10 million acres of land and we have 50 million acres of lawn so we could increase our fruit production by five times on our lawns right now of course that's completely impractical i don't think of that as like a kind of like william wheelwright's like you know thread about you know uh oh yeah yeah you know or if everyone grew chickens right uh or or raised chickens Um, but but it's but it's a really really useful way of comparing numbers you're like look even if two percent of people switch their lawn over to or like it would actually be noticeable it would be it would be a real thing so a fraction of perfect is still absolutely absolutely wonderful yeah Um, so so you're are you creating your own certification for this or are you tell, tell us tell us about that yeah we're we're creating it from scratch um you know, uh, there doesn't appear to be, you know, there's obviously there's tons of permaculture certificates and information about permaculture in a residential or homesteading mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, or, or even a larger farming like operation. But there's there isn't as much about like commercial landscapers. Right. Which make up the bulk of that hundred and thirty billion is commercial operations, not necessarily residential. And so. You know, our thought is, well, we need we need to scale up education. That's what needs to scale up is more people need to need to be able to do the small things like recognize what's a weed, for instance, and what's what's actually a beneficial plant. Right. Um, And so uh, we're we're kind of starting with those level one, level two, level three certification in three key areas, maintenance, install and design. Um, we've launched soft launched the level one maintenance certification with, uh, some, one of the contractors that maintain the libraries. Um, and then we're rolling it out with DeKalb, um, sorry, Georgia Piedmont technical college, um, in September, it'll actually be an online course that people can take. You do a couple, I think it's a couple hours online, and then you show up for a practicum, like at one of the productive urban landscapes at the libraries. Um, to get some hands-on training. And it's all just around like, what is a productive urban landscape? Why don't we want to prune it into a ball every two weeks, right? Like that's a, it's it's such an elementary question, but it's a really, it's a good question, right? Why? Why is this bad? Because I think this looks better, right? Than this, uh, what I think is an unkempt bush. And it's like, well, because you're like, you know, it's like, one is trimming your cat's claws every once in a while. And the other is every two weeks ripping its toes out, right? Like it, you know, yeah, these yeah. are two completely different scenarios, right? And they don't know that because it looks great until it starts getting brown and the, everything around it dies. And then soon it's dead. And by then it's not really their problem. They did what they were supposed to. They put it into a ball like they were supposed to. And now they're just putting dried sticks into a ball, right? Um and so we just need to like start to change little things, recognizing the little things they can change. Um, and then from a business standpoint, you know, we've we've launched the app, our, our Roots Down app, which you can get on Apple or Android um, as and that's sort of a way of like we like to say it's like a, a garden club with like a side of climate action. Right. So you're going to get practical tips for how to maintain your yard, the same that we're giving to growers and landscapers. And then you're also going to be given practical tips about how you can actually start to move your local officials, right? Actually start to make the policy changes that will make these types of changes legal. Um, And so we're really trying to like kind of just seed it. You know, we get a lot of people that are interested and they want to do something, um, but they're in this position where we're, we're told like, email your senator 
right? Shout about it on social media, you know, put a sign in your front yard, you know, and, and none of these are, they're satisfying in the moment, but they don't actually move anything. Um, and, and also, I, you know, I personally don't believe that climate action is going to come from the federal and international level. It's going to come from the ground up and it's either going to come from the natural pressures of the ecological crises we find ourselves in, or it's going to come from what doomer optimism hints at is a whole lot of people across the political spectrum realizing the same damn thing at the same time, which is that we need to live smaller lives that are closer to the land um, and, and filled with community and engagement among people, not filled with uh, necessarily commercial endeavors at all, at all, at every step of the way. Um, man, that, that was a, that was a rant. Sorry. No, no, that was, that was beautiful because it's, it's, it is, I mean, that's, that's, that's the picture, right? There's, there's, there's a bunch, there's a bunch of people who are, uh, and, and I, I count myself kind of among them where I'm like, my response to this is I need more space so that I can plant more. And I love that your, your, and Bruce Jones response is like, no, we actually have plenty of the place to plenty of space here and we already have community built in so let's use those two things that we already have and turn those into instead of them being a net drain turn them into like a massive massive positive thing and then the other thing that i love about it is that every time you read about the blue zones where you know people live a long time it has to do with community and it has to do with you know um small groups of people often tending tending gardens and um it's just the the fact that it the way the way you guys are painting the future in in atlanta and hopefully a lot of other places in the next couple of years especially at the pace you're moving there's gonna be a lot more people who understand that like the the incredible power of just growing some potatoes and some garlic like it's a it's just, it is one of the most underrated underrated but really powerfully transformative things people can do is start a little garden and a lot of people don't because they're the only ones everybody else has got yards and pools and all of this but if it starts to become a thing that happens in the water around there's going to be a lot more people who are who will take a, take a slight bit of interest and then that'll be the catalyst that changes that, that like changes awareness i know it happened it happened for me and mm -hmm. it happened for almost almost everybody that we interact with in, in yeah. the uh, you know doomer optimism adjacent circles it's uh it's really really powerful um uh, we're we're coming up on an hour here. Uh, where can people find out more about Roots Down? Uh, well, obviously our website, it's rootsdownga.com. Um, you also, if you search for Roots Down in the App Store or Google Play, you can find our app. That's a great way. It's totally free to sign up. Um, and we're also Roots Down GA on all the social platforms. That's a great place to, to find us as well. Mostly Instagram. We focus mostly on Instagram. Um, but, uh, which is ironic given I, uh, the fact that I'm on Twitter personally, that's almost my exclusive, uh, platform. Um, but the company spends more time on Instagram. That's one of hey, pic pictures, a thousand words, <laughs> et cetera. And it, you know, that's, 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 that's powerful. Um, dude, thanks for sharing a, like a beautiful vision of what suburbs we started off talking about how suburbs suck yeah. and suck the soul out. <laughs> and then the rest of the time was, Hey, we can take this this kind of broken infrastructure and turn it into something really wonderful and regenerative and restorative for the humans. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I think that's, that's, that's beautiful. And I, I really, really love what you guys are doing. So um, if anybody's interested, please go, go check this out and uh, find, find trace on Twitter. He's a uh, dog eat crow, right? Yes. At dog eat crow. Yeah. Uh, trace. Good, good to catch up with you, man. Hey, thank you so much, Dave. Of course, brother. <laughs>